Welcome back to the MCG Pediatric Podcast. My name is Dr. James Davis, and I'm a recent graduate of the Pediatric Residency Program at the Medical College of Georgia, and I'm currently a practicing community physician. I am delighted to be here with Dr. Susan Goldberg, who is an Associate Professor of General Pediatrics at MCG. Dr. Goldberg, thank you for joining the podcast today. Thanks for having me. So today we're discussing tick-borne illnesses, a topic which for me is rather interesting because it used to terrify me. Why is that, James? So I grew up for a good portion of my early childhood in uh, the rural wooded parts of Hanover County, Virginia. And, you know, for me that, you know, summer means tick checks and every fall you're seeing at least three people with a bullseye rash on the back of their shoulder. But um, I moved to Cape Town, South Africa when I was a little bit older and there we didn't see much of really kind of any ticks or tick-borne infections. So to me, it went from something that was familiar to some sort of nebulous North American rare disease set. Are there not many ticks in Cape Town? There's some, but they're ground-level ticks, and you really need to get out into the bush more to be at risk. And interestingly, when I did look into tick-borne diseases in South Africa, I could only really find one tick-borne pathogen that was really endemic to the region. That is a big difference, especially when you consider that there are multiple tick-borne illnesses in North America with really varying ranges, prevalence, and vectors. Multiple illnesses? I'm aware of the big ones, like Lyme and Rocky Mountain Spotted Fever, but what are the others? To clarify, ticks transmit the infection that causes the illnesses. You can categorize tick-borne diseases into bacterial causes, such as tularemia, ehrlichiosis, and anaplasmosis. There are virus-borne tick diseases, which include the Heartland and Powassan viruses, and then there is a parasitic infection, babesiosis. Did you know that there are about 11 different tick-borne diseases that can be acquired across the majority of the mainland United States? That's quite a number. But today's episode, we will be focusing on Lyme disease. So why Lyme disease in particular? Lyme disease is the most common tick-borne disease in the United States. There are actually more cases of Lyme disease a year than all other tick-borne diseases combined. Really? Yep. As a matter of fact, in 2017, there were approximately 42,000 reported cases of Lyme disease. By comparison, in second place were rickettsial diseases and anaplasmosis, both at about 6,000 cases each. The number of cases of all non-Lyme tick-borne diseases in 2017 was somewhere in the ballpark of 17,600. That's a pretty big difference. That's right. So James, what do you know about Lyme disease? Well, Lyme disease itself is caused by a spirochete, uh, Borrelia burgdorferi, and it is transmitted by the deer tick, Ixodes scapularis, as well as the western black-legged tick, Ixodes pacificus. That's correct. Again, these ticks are only the vectors. These spirochetes reside in the salivary glands of the tick, waiting to be injected into its new host. As a zoonotic disease, Lyme disease has a population reservoir in the form of small mammals that live in endemic regions. So what does that mean for us people? It means that, unlike diseases such as smallpox or polio, which do not have a non-human reservoir, we can never fully eradicate Lyme disease from the environment. That's a good point. So then the emphasis for the medical provider is to focus more on prevention and treatment. Is that correct? That's right. We will discuss more about that in a bit. But first, let's talk about where the endemic regions are in the United States. So most people typically think of Lyme disease occurring in the northeast portion of the United States. But it actually extends from New England as far south as Virginia and North Carolina. Yes, but don't be fooled. Lyme disease can also be found in the upper Midwest, particularly Wisconsin and Minnesota, and even in Northern California. And I've also read that there appears to be an uptick in the incidence of disease. Why do you think that is? Is it just increased reporting? Possibly, but there also seems to be a shift in the tick habitat. 
What do you mean by that? For any vector transmitting organism like ticks, the geographic and seasonal distribution very much depends on climate, land development, socioeconomic factors, pest control, and how humans respond to disease risk in the area. Daily, seasonal, or year-to-year climate variability can result in adaptation or shifts or even expansion of these vector organisms across geographic ranges. And it's interesting that you say that because there's actually some data that is documenting a southward expansion of Ixodes scapularis habitat range into previously lime-naive regions of the Midwest. Yes, interestingly, these shifts can alter disease incidence depending on vector and host interaction, host immunity, and even the pathogen evolution. Okay, James, let's keep our discussion going by introducing our clinical case for the listeners. All right. So we have Mr. Ken Rash, who is a 16-year-old male that presents to clinic with concerns of knee pain and the sensation of skipped heartbeats. About a few days ago, he woke up and noticed that his left knee was red and swollen and painful to move, and he's been icing and wrapping the knee and is taking ibuprofen, all of which has provided minimal relief. He became concerned when he started feeling like his heart was skipping beats while attempting to play basketball at school. Great case. So James, let's begin developing our differential diagnosis. What are the chief concerns that pop out at you? Well, based upon what he's telling me, I'm hearing swollen, painful knee and palpitations. Okay. So what are some of the possible causes for his symptoms? So just kind of running through common things. For his knee, given that he plays basketball, there could be some kind of injury to the tendons, ligaments, menisci, or bursae around or within the knee. Yes, must rule out musculoskeletal causes for sure. I'm also thinking about infectious causes. He's a teenager, so we should consider sexually transmitted disease, such as conococcal arthritis, and of course, septic arthritis. Good job. Reactive arthritis would also be something I would consider, given that group A strep infections are far more common than Lyme disease. What else? And we could also consider rheumatologic causes, such as uh, juvenile idiopathic arthritis, or GIA. I'm also thinking about hemarthrosis if there's a personal history or family history of bleeding disorders. So what do you think about his skipped heartbeats? Well, it could be something simple, like caffeine intake causing palpitations that may be perceived by the patient as skipped beats. But, you know, more serious issues would be a conduction defect, like a heart block, a variant pathway, or ectopic atrial foci. Perhaps he might even have an undiagnosed congenital heart abnormality. Great start. So James, it sounds like we need more information. Please tell me more. All right. So Ken is an avid hiker, and right before school started a couple months ago, he hiked with his dad and his dog Bullseye through a portion of the Appalachian Trail that crossed the Virginia-North Carolina border. Interesting. Yes, and he actually missed the first week of school in August because he developed a fever and felt ill. He remembers that all his muscles and several different joints were more sore than usual, but he assumed it was due to the hiking trip. He even got a COVID swab, but it returned negative. The symptoms did resolve and he was able to return to school. Otherwise, Ken's been a healthy kid. His family history is only significant for hypertension and a grandfather who had a valve replacement when he was 67. He denies any tobacco, alcohol, or recreational drug use and has never been sexually active. No other traveler sick contacts were noted and he's involved in sports year-round. So he is really worried about the decreased mobility of his knee, but he doesn't recall any injury. Interesting. So have there been any daily fevers, myalgias, or arthralgias? Or any unintentional weight loss? None that he reported to me. Okay. So tell me more about his physical exam. So he's afebrile with an age-appropriate heart rate, respiratory rate, and blood pressure. He is generally well-appearing, though appears a little bit anxious. Neck is supple. Lungs are clear to auscultation. 
I hear no murmur, S3, S4, fixed split, S2, or rubs on cardiac exam. Is abdomen is soft, and GU exam is benign. The most prominent physical exam finding is swelling around his left knee. There is some erythema and limitation of active range of motion, and he reports some tenderness to palpation. I don't observe any rash, and a full neurologic exam indicates no focal findings, including a brief mental status screen. Okay, so I know we are itching to call this Lyme disease, but before we do so, let's make sure that we can rule out other potential causes. All right, so from that list that we said earlier, uh, an overuse injury or rheumatic condition might still be considered. However, some things like acute trauma or a bleeding disorder are further down the list based on its history. He also does not likely have a major congenital heart defect or hypertrophic obstructive cardiomyopathy, but we should consider evaluation to help rule out any valvular lesions, small septal defects, conduction abnormalities, or electrolyte disturbances. From an infectious standpoint, less likely this is meningitis, but perhaps you could make a case for endocarditis or myocarditis, but the patient should present much more acutely ill, I would think. And then there is septic arthritis, which includes gonococcal arthritis, but he's not currently febrile, so maybe that's a little less likely. And given that he was hiking and likely camping out in the woods, giardia would be a common infection to consider, but he has no diarrhea. And you mentioned that he had multiple joint pains previously when he had the fever. That does raise suspicions of migratory arthralgias, which is not a feature of post-streptal reactive arthritis, but can be a feature found in Lyme disease. So yes, a tick-borne illness, particularly Lyme disease, is at the top of the differential, given his travel history, initial prodrome, and current presentation. Okay, so James, Lyme disease can be a tricky diagnosis because there are actually three stages of Lyme disease, early localized, early disseminated, and late disease. James, how do we differentiate between these stages? All right, so I know that early localized and disseminated disease appear within 3 to 32 days, while late disease can appear months after the bite in patients who were not treated earlier. Yes, that's correct. There is a fair degree of overlap in the presenting symptoms of both the early stages of infection, and not every symptom is present in all cases, making it difficult to diagnose. Erythema migrans is the most common clinical manifestation of the early localized disease stage. And that is the technical term for the bullseye rash, correct? Yes. Erythema migrans can range in appearance from a 2 to 3 centimeter red bump at the bite site to a large targetoid lesion, and even multiple red circles can be seen across the body. The presence of single or multiple erythema migrans lesions is one of the determining factors between localized and disseminated disease. James, can you name some of the other symptoms associated with early localized disease? Aside from the erythema migrans, other symptoms of early localized disease would be a mild fever, neck stiffness, headache, general malaise, myalgias, and arthralgias without joint swelling. And what about disseminated disease? Typically, you would have the same general symptoms as early localized disease, but you may have specific findings that involve other major organ systems. Yes, early disseminated Lyme disease has been found to specifically affect the central nervous system as well as the cardiovascular system. James, what are some manifestations that you would find affecting the central nervous system? So neurologic symptoms typically would occur in early disseminated Lyme disease. If there is cranial nerve involvement, you would see a facial palsy either on one or both sides of the face. Patients may also complain of numbness, tingling, weakness, or shooting pain in the arms or legs when there is peripheral nerve involvement. More severe symptoms would be due to central nervous system involvement uh, due to Lyme meningitis. 
These patients would present with fever, headache, sensitivity to light, and perhaps a stiff neck. Great job. So if a patient in early stages of Lyme disease is not treated, that person is at risk of permanent nervous system damage. So it's really important to evaluate for these clinical symptoms when you have suspicion for Lyme disease. And with that, uh, do we need a lumbar puncture to diagnose Lyme meningitis? Great question. Cerebral spinal fluid analysis will be helpful to rule out other potential causes, such as a bacterial meningitis, but it's not necessary to diagnose Lyme meningitis. And then our patient was complaining of skipped heartbeat. So I'm also worried about Lyme carditis, which is when Lyme disease bacteria actually enters the tissue of the heart and can interfere with its conduction system. That's right. Lyme carditis occurs in approximately one out of every hundred Lyme disease cases reported to the CDC. James, what other symptoms would make you suspicious of Lyme carditis? Well, in addition to the sensation of palpitations, some worrisome symptoms would be lightheadedness, fainting, shortness of breath, and chest pain. And these symptoms are usually a sign of a disruption in the heart's rhythm, also known as a heart block. Good job. The severity of the heart block can fluctuate rapidly, and the progression to complete heart block can be fatal. The heart block in Lyme carditis can be transient, and typically will resolve with antibiotic therapy, which we'll discuss more in detail later. Also, don't forget that Lyme carditis can also affect the heart's muscle, valves, and outer layer of the heart wall. So then we probably should order more than just an EKG, maybe an echocardiogram as well, to evaluate for Lyme carditis. That's right. So what would you expect to find on an EKG for mild Lyme carditis? So for mild Lyme carditis, we would typically see evidence of a first-degree AV block with a PR interval of less than 300 milliseconds. Yes. What would you find for severe forms of Lyme carditis? So the severe symptomatic form would have a first-degree AV block with a PR interval of 300 or greater milliseconds or a second or third-degree AV block. Great job. We should note that compared to the prevalence of erythema migrans, the neurologic and cardiovascular symptoms are far less common. Cranial nerve palsies occur in 3 to 12% of cases, and Lyme carditis occurs even more infrequently at 0.5%. Wow. So even though the percentage of these CNS and cardiac issues are low, those are pretty significant symptoms if present. So how do patients end up in late disease? I mean, surely it would be fairly noticeable, especially if they have disseminated disease. Great question, James. Remember that not every symptom will appear in every patient, including erythema migrans. So it's plausible that a patient might not have the rash, or the patient might have had a very small, isolated, hard-to-find rash and have mild systemic symptoms that may have been brushed off as a minor illness, or it's possible that the rash is obscured by, for example, the patient's skin color. That makes sense. So then, how does late Lyme disease present? Typically, late Lyme disease will present with Lyme arthritis. And how is that different from the arthralgia of early disease? Another great question. So Lyme arthritis does not usually arise until several months after the infection. The arthritis found in late Lyme disease tends to be focused on one or more large joints and is clinically distinguished by swelling of the joint. The knee is the most often affected, but it can occur in other large joints, such as the shoulder, ankle, elbow, jaw, wrist, or even the hip. On physical exam, you will observe a swollen joint that may be warm to the touch and be painful with movement. The AAP's Red Book even describes the swelling as out of proportion to the pain or disability. Interestingly, the swelling may spontaneously resolve and recur. So that may be hard to catch then if it's not constant. Agree. 
Did you know that Lyme arthritis accounts for approximately one out of every four Lyme disease cases reported to the CDC? It's a big deal because you can have permanent damage to the joint if it's left untreated. That's very interesting. All right, so since this is an important point, just to summarize for the listeners, nonspecific migratory arthralgias without swelling occurs in the early stages, while mono or oligoarticular arthritis of large joints with obvious swelling in the late stage. Are there any other organ systems affected during the late stages of Lyme disease? Yes, there are some neurologic findings such as encephalitis, encephalopathy, and polyneuropathy. There may also be ophthalmologic complications such as uveitis and conjunctivitis, but all of these symptoms are much less common. So, Dr. Goldberg, uh, can Lyme disease just be a clinical diagnosis, or is lab work absolutely required? There's not a hard set of criteria, but there are two main pathways towards making a diagnosis. One branch is purely clinical, and the other involves lab investigations. Interesting. So, would the clinical criteria be obvious signs of Lyme disease within an endemic area? Based on the 2021 Revised Infectious Disease Society of America guidelines, or the IDSA for short, the presence of an acute solitary erythema migraines rash with exposure to a Lyme endemic region during the time frame of April through October can be used to clinically diagnose Lyme disease. This recommendation reflects studies that have found only about 20% of patients with Lyme disease presenting with solitary erythema migraines rash in the acute setting have actually seroconverted. So using this clinical criteria can help prevent delayed diagnosis. So then serologic testing is reserved for patients with disseminated or late Lyme disease symptoms? That's correct. In fact, in early disseminated disease, as a provider, you are obligated to test. What type or types of serologic tests do you think we might use? Well, I was thinking possibly a blood culture and maybe a PCR. That's not a bad idea. We would typically run those tests to rule out other bacterial infections. However, not the best choice to diagnose Lyme disease. Instead, we have two tiers of serologic testing. The first tier is a Lyme antibody screen using ELISA or immunofluorescent assay. If this test is negative, the patient does not have Lyme disease. If it's positive or equivocal, then the sample undergoes the next tier of testing. The second tier is usually an IgG or IgM Western blot, though there are some ELISAs that have been proved for the second tier. If both tests are positive, then it has been confirmed that the patient has Lyme disease. So then the first test has a high sensitivity and the second has a high specificity? Not quite. The first is sensitive, yes, but it's the combination of the two tests that is more specific. If you jump straight to the Western blot, your results won't be as reliable. I see. So then for our patient, Mr. Ken Rash, since he has no erythema migraines rash and is presenting in a delayed time frame, even though his history is consistent with Lyme disease, we should draw the two serology labs before we can conclude that he has Lyme disease, correct? That is correct. Okay, so moving forward, let's say we have confirmed Lyme disease. How then will we start treatment? That depends on the stage of the disease. The good news is that those who are treated appropriately in the early stages of Lyme disease will typically recover quickly and prevent the later stages of Lyme disease. For early localized Lyme disease, you should begin treatment with either doxycycline, amoxicillin, cefuroxime, or azithromycin. That's a lot of choices. 
how would I go about choosing which would be the best option for my patients? The choice is based on what additional symptoms are present, allergies that your patient has, the dose timing, and the presence of polymicrobial infections. It even depends on the ability to avoid the sun if you are considering doxycycline. In general, kids 8 and older are treated with doxycycline first line, and kids under 8 are treated with amoxicillin. Gotcha. So how long should I prescribe treatment then for early localized Lyme disease? Treatment duration varies depending on the antibiotic. Amoxicillin and cefuroxime are prescribed for 14 days and azithromycin for 5 to 10 days. Doxycycline requires only 10 days due to the concern for toxicity, particularly in younger kids. Doxycycline has an anti-inflammatory effect and it is cleared more slowly, which means that it will have a longer post-treatment effect. Okay. So what about early disseminated Lyme disease? Is it a similar treatment regimen or if not, where does it differ? So remember that early disseminated Lyme disease affects the central nervous system and cardiovascular system. So it depends on the symptoms that are present. If a facial palsy is present, you can treat with oral doxycycline for 14 to 21 days. And I'm guessing that for these patients in particular, it might be helpful to prescribe eye drops or even an eye patch for those who have difficulty closing one or both eyes just to prevent dry eyes. Absolutely. Oral or intravenous antibiotics can be used to treat Lyme meningitis and radiculoneuritis, but that depends on the severity of the case. You could choose to start with IV ceftriaxone and then transition to oral doxycycline once the patient is stabilized and discharged to complete a treatment course of 14 to 21 days. Good to know. Um, And what if Lyme carditis is present? Mild Lyme carditis, which would have evidence of first-degree AV block with a PR interval of less than 300 milliseconds, can be treated with oral antibiotics typically for 14 to 21 days. But what about those with signs of severe Lyme carditis? Does that then require IV antibiotics? Patients with suspected severe Lyme carditis require immediate hospitalization for cardiac monitoring and treatment with IV ceftriaxone. But after resolution of the symptoms of high-grade AV block, you can then consider transitioning to oral antibiotics to complete the treatment course. Gotcha. Okay. So then lastly, what about late Lyme disease when Lyme arthritis is present? If Lyme arthritis is present, you would use the same antibiotics for early limited or erythema migraines only early disseminated Lyme disease. However, instead of treating for up to 14 days, you would treat for four weeks. Some patients may require a second course of antibiotics after the first round due to persistent joint inflammation and pain. IV ceftriaxone is the preferred regimen in this case for a second course of antibiotics for patients without a response after the initial course of antibiotics. I've also read that a patient may be at risk of developing something called post-antibiotic Lyme arthritis after the failure of antibiotic treatment. What exactly is that? Yep, there are some cases where patients are at risk for developing persistent synovitis even after treatment. So it may be helpful to add a non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drug or an NSAID to the therapy. And do these patients need to see orthopedics? Orthopedics can be consulted if you're trying to rule out septic arthritis, which obviously would require surgical intervention, but Lyme arthritis would not specifically require orthopedics. What about rheumatology? If antibiotic treatment for Lyme disease does not resolve the issue, a referral can be done to pediatric rheumatology if we were considering immunomodulator therapies. So then how successful is antibiotic treatment? 
A study published in the Journal of Infectious Disease Society discussed the resolution of symptoms in kids with early disseminated and late Lyme disease, including those with Lyme meningitis and carditis. What was found was, regardless of how long the symptoms had been present, once the patients were started on appropriate antibiotic therapy, the majority eventually showed complete recovery. That's good to know. So how quickly can these patients recover? The same study reported that recovery time is variable. The evidence suggested that early identification and treatment of Lyme arthritis led to faster resolution. That is very interesting. And for those who did not have complete recovery, what lingering symptoms were observed? Patients that have undergone treatment but failed to recover or have persistent infections show signs of continued active disease, including arthritis, meningitis, or neuropathy. So then is that the supposed chronic Lyme disease that I hear talked about sometimes? (laughs) The term chronic Lyme disease is a bit of a controversial term. A better term to use is post-treatment Lyme disease syndrome, or PTLDS. In these patients, symptoms such as fatigue, pain, and joint and muscle aches persist without objective evidence of treatment failure or reinfection of Lyme disease. And do these patients need to be on a long-term antibiotic regimen? Clinical practice guidelines by the IDSA recommend against antibiotic therapy for those with PTLDS. Carefully designed placebo-controlled studies have failed to demonstrate that prolonged antibiotic therapy is beneficial. Good to know. All right, so a major role for us pediatricians is to help patients know how to prevent illness. What advice can we provide regarding prevention of Lyme disease? Like we mentioned, ticks love warmer weather months, but exposure can occur year-round. So it would be helpful to know which ticks are most common in your area of the country. So before peak periods of the year, you can take the opportunity to educate families about minimizing infection from tick bites. This can include avoiding typical habitats of ticks, which include grassy, brushy, or wooded areas. And don't forget the animals, including family pets. But of course, we want people to enjoy the outdoors. So there are ways to protect yourself from tick exposure while enjoying. I know that wearing light-colored clothing that covers and minimizes the degree of exposed skin, like long sleeves or tucking pants legs into the cuffs of socks, is also helpful to avoid ticks. That's right. You can even spray the clothes with 0.5% permethrin and let them dry before wearing as an additional barrier. James, you mentioned at the beginning of the episode being checked for ticks at school when you lived in Virginia. Can you explain to the listeners what this entails? Yes. So you should definitely do a full body check on yourself and your child for ticks after time outdoors in potentially tick infested areas. And this includes your backyard. So not necessarily specifically during school, but every day coming in from playing outside in the summer, because we lived near a whole bunch of trees, we had a tick check every night. And typical areas that you can check include under the arms, in or around the ears, inside the belly button, the back of the knees, in and throughout the hair, between the legs and around the waist. And don't forget also to examine pets, clothes, and gear, as these are common ways that ticks might be carried into the house and attached to a person later on. Of course, remove any ticks that are found, wash clothes with hot water since cold and medium temperature will not kill the ticks, showering within two hours of coming indoors has also been shown to reduce the risk of getting Lyme disease. So, Dr. Goldberg, what is the best way to remove a tick once it's attached to the host? Because I've heard a lot of different methods including holding a lighter up to the tick or slathering Vaseline or nail polish onto the tick. Yes, there are many home remedies, but essentially the goal is to remove the tick as quickly as possible. 
A fine-tipped clean tweezer is really all you need to remove the attached tick. You can grasp the tick as close to the skin surface as possible. Make sure you're gripping the head since it's easy to accidentally remove the body and leave the head intact. Pull upward with steady, even pressure, but don't twist or jerk, which again can leave the mouth parts to break off and remain attached to the skin. After removing the tick, thoroughly clean the bite area and wash your hands with rubbing alcohol or soap and water. Dispose of the live tick by first putting it in alcohol or wrapping it in tape in a sealed bag. And I'm assuming the old wives' tales of using a lighter or Vaseline nail polish are not good ways to remove a tick. There's some thought that irritating the tick might allow it to inject more secretions and therefore potentially more infection into the host if the tick is irritated prior to removal. Gotcha. So how long does it take before the tick bite begins to cause a problem? It takes approximately 48 hours of continuous bite time to transmit Lyme disease. So James, what if I have a mom that brings her child to clinic and it's unclear how long the tick has been present? That's a good question. I'm actually not quite sure. I know adults have doxycycline prophylaxis. Do we have the same thing for kids? There actually is. It's a single dose of doxycycline, regardless of age group, because amoxicillin's half-life is too short to serve as post-exposure prophylaxis. So then should we worry about prescribing doxycycline in kids under 8 due to side effects like teeth staining? Good question. Per the AAP's most recent guidelines on Lyme management, the data regarding teeth staining was more significant for older tetracyclines and not for doxycycline. Good to know. So here's an interesting trivia fact. There was actually a Lyme disease vaccine on the market from 1998 to 2002. No kidding. Yep, but it was actually discontinued due to poor sales and anti-vaccine concerns. Well, you know, with the increasing incidence and expanding geographic range of Lyme disease, it honestly might not be a bad idea to revisit that. Agree, and good to know that it at least exists if ever needed. All right, so that was a really great discussion today. Um, But let's begin wrapping up our episode. Let's summarize the main points for our listeners. Okay, I'll start us off. Lyme disease is a tick-borne spirochete that is found most commonly in the New England and Mid-Atlantic regions of the United States, but does have some presence in the northern Midwest and northern California. Presents in three different stages. Early localized disease, which is characterized by erythema migrans at the bite site only. Early disseminated disease, which is characterized by multiple sites of erythema migrans with occasional neurologic sequelae and, rarely, heart block. And late disease, which is characterized mainly by arthritis. Diagnosis can be made clinically if a solitary erythema migraine's rash is present and the history is consistent. Otherwise, two-tier serologic testing is used to establish the diagnosis. Treatment consists of oral doxycycline or amoxicillin, depending on the patient's age, or, in the case of severe illness, IV ceftriaxone initially. Treatment course is 10 to 14 days, depending on the antibiotic, except in the case of Lyme uh, neuroborreliosis, which can take up to 21 days, or Lyme arthritis, which can take 28 or more days. And finally, prevention is possible by avoiding tick-infested areas or wearing adequate clothing to cover exposed skin, treating clothing with permethrin, performing tick checks to ensure removal prior to 48 hours of attachment time, and the prompt removal of an attached tick if found. All right. Well, thank you again, Dr. Goldberg, for joining me today. Thank you so much. This was really, really fun. And initial thanks to Dr. Ingrid Camello, Dr. Jacob Eichenberger, and Dr. Rebecca Yang, who contributed to the content of today's discussion. 
Thank you for listening to this episode from the Department of Pediatrics at the Medical College of Georgia. If you have any comments, suggestions, or feedback, you can email us at mcgpediatricpodcast at augusta.edu. Remember that all content during this episode is intended for informational and educational purposes only. It should not be used as medical advice to diagnose or treat any particular patient. Clinical vignette cases presented are based upon hypothetical patient scenarios. The free CME credit is also available for this episode. Please refer to our show notes and website for the link. We look forward to speaking to you on our next episode of the MCG Pediatric Podcast. <laughs>